listener production. Hi, it's Ursula, and I'm currently on tour in the UK and Ireland, but I didn't want you to forget about me or my beautiful, sultry voice. I'm sure you couldn't get sick of it, right? Like, how could you? So in my absence, I wanted to share interviews that I've featured in with some of my fellow podcasting friends. This is a great chat I had with Will Anderson on his podcast, Willosophy, where he attempts to discover the meaning of life by asking smart people stupid questions. So he's come to the right place. That's quite enough. Just shut your mouth. I don't give a stuff. Shush, please. Yes, I can hear. But I don't care. That's enough already. Shut up. Oh, shush. This episode is a little trip down memory lane to my 20s, actually. So it's a long lane. It's a very long lane. We chat all things comedy, quarantine, and the time I had an aggressive encounter with a coffee mug. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And today's guest, well, you don't get bigger than this at the moment in the world of comedy, Ursula Carlson. Um, I love Ursh. I've known her for a um, quite a long time now and uh, we've gigged together all over the world and I just think she's absolutely brilliant and one of those people where you couldn't be happier for this success that they are having. But wow, this was a fascinating chat. I love talking to her about stand-up comedy, about her attitude to stand-up comedy as someone who was not a fan of stand-up comedy before they got into it. It came to it very late, you know, in their life, not very late in their life, but late for people in stand-up, people who have become to dominate stand-up in the way that she has come to dominate stand-up. It's such a fascinating story, but she's also super hilarious, super hilarious. I will say this, the audio quality isn't amazing. Uh, Podcast Mike has done an absolutely brilliant job to make sure that it is as listenable as possible, but it's probably not what we would ideally like for the quality of this podcast. That said, uh, these are unusual times and there's going to be a few episodes along the way. We try our best to set everything up properly before, but as everybody is understanding at these times, sometimes the internet connection fails, sometimes the microphones don't work. And it's a pity that you have to lose a really good conversation just because of the audio quality. So Podcast Mike sits in his podcast lab and he uh, makes it an interesting and enjoyable listen for all you guys. So if you want to support making sure that Podcast Mike can keep getting paid for that, I have a Patreon page. The Patreon page is patreon.com slash philosophy, W-A-L-O-S-P-H-Y. You can message me there. Somebody messaged me during the week saying that they uh, – would love if there was a clean feed of this show without advertising if they were a Patreon subscriber. That sounds like a good idea. I don't know how to do that, but I'm going to do some investigation in how to do that. And if I have some time at some stage, then maybe that's something that we can offer to people. And if that is appealing to you, we might be able to get a clean feed somewhere for those who don't like listening to the ads during the episode. And maybe if you contribute, then you don't need to be listening to the ads. Anyway, like I said, don't know how to do it, but that's the sort of feedback that you can give me on the Patreon page. And I will, of course, respond to everybody who messages me there because I love the fact that you are supporting this show. If we make it to $5,000, this is the thing that we're going for at the moment. And we're nearly up to 4,000 at this time. Uh, If we can make it to $5,000 a month on the Patreon page, then uh, we're going to get into releasing regularly two episodes per week. That will be one brand new episode uh, with a brand new philosophy guest and one catch-up episode with a previous philosophy guest. There is also at some stage going to be extra content on the Patreon page, but I I feel like I shouldn't even mention that at the moment because we've got to get ahead around some other stuff first and then we're going to get to that. But we will get to it. In the meantime, if you want a super huge laugh, 
Uh, make sure you catch it. Ur- uh, Ursula Carlson, Overqualified Loser is the name of the show on Netflix. It was called Loser when she toured it all over the place, but Overqualified Loser and the story behind that is very American and very hilarious and you'll get to hear that here today as well. So check out Ursula's show um, on Netflix and, yeah, if you like this episode, rate it, share it, uh, pass it around to somebody else who might like it and support us on the Patreon. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and I'm so excited to have today's guest on the show. Uh, I Look, she's probably excited too because she's in quarantine and she's probably got bugger all else to do at the moment. So this is probably, I've noticed she's been doing a lot of podcasts and it seems like a very sensible thing to do while you're in quarantine. Basically, they've got to do this with people who return from overseas. When they come back, they say, you're going to be in a hotel for two weeks. Here's a list of podcasts and radio shows that you can do in the meantime to keep your mental health together. This is how the show starts, guest on today's podcast. I ask the guests who they are. So who are you? My name is Ishla Carlson and I am my mother's youngest daughter, also her favourite. Is that really true, do you think? Um, no, but my mum always does that because there's three of us. My brother's the eldest and then I'm the baby and my sister. So um, she lives with my sister, but then my brother always goes, but he's the favourite. He's always been the favourite. Like that's been her thing since, but he's not. I think we all know it's me. But she does so, that. Whenever we, we're alone with her, she goes, you know you're my favourite. Like she's still that mum. Do you think she's saying that to everyone, though? Is that a thing yeah, that no. she says to Yeah, She 100% does, and she thinks we don't talk to each other. Because <laughs> when she's with me, she'll go, I'm so worried about your sister. I, I'm worried for where, you know, how she, she is with the kids. I'm worried about how she is with her in her marriage. And then when she's with my sister, she goes, I'm really worried about Ursh. I'm worried about <laughs> She's just, she's that mum. <laughs> she's been single too long. She needs a husband. So just a shout out if you're in your 60s, 70s um, and still have a zest for life, but not too much. You know, no one needs that around Christmas. Um, my mum's looking for a man. Basically, just heterosexual and solvent is all we're looking for. <laughs> well, that's a lot to ask in these quarantine times. I so. Know. I think everybody, you know, some who were once solvent are no longer solvent and some who were mostly heterosexual have decided, well, if all bets are <laughs> off in the world, let's see what's going to happen from here on in. Yeah, before this virus takes me, I want to experiment with as much as I possibly can. As we see society's norms crumble, let's have another mm. norm crumble as well. I think if like a lot more people come out of this pandemic, at least by, I think that's yeah. going to be a good result for the world. Well, <laughs> just be amazing go look we've got a vaccine and weirdly everyone's bisexual now people won't stop humping each other in the queue so tell me this uh how has your quarantine been in general the pandemic time and at the moment you are generally in a hotel quarantine aren't you in actual quarantine like i'm not even allowed to open the hotel door i don't have a key for my door so if i do get trapped outside i am it's actually been good. I, I've enjoyed it. And I've been, because before that, I've been in isolation in New Zealand for basically seven months solid. Like we're out now, but I still try and keep 
away, you know, from the general public, mainly because now the people are out of, you know, we have no more community transmission, right? People are out, they're back to normal or whatever normal is. But I think you'll find once Australia gets to that point where you can just now go and do whatever, people are angry because they've spent so much time alone and they've there's like this weird PTSD odour hanging around and people are ready to fight, and I, I'm not, it's like, you know, when you rock up at, at someone's house and they've just, uh, the couple have just had a fight and you kind of have that weird sense that shit's about to go down at any minute. That's how it feels, that vibe. So everyone's happy the, the virus is gone, but they're angry about, about stuff. Yeah, people are ready to pop off. You can see it. Yeah. You can see it online at the moment. People are like, you know, there's real pent-up anger from people just going, who can we destroy today? Yeah. What can we do today to make us feel human again. So what about you personally? Like how was it for you, the quarantine time? I mean, obviously as a live performer, um, one of the first things to get cancelled was the, you know, the Melbourne Comedy Festival. You know, yeah. you would have been doing a huge show there, but like touring shows around, this yeah. would have been a big year for you in front of people live on stage. And then the very thing you do for a living is one of the most dangerous things in the world now. And actually, <laughs> yeah. comedy has always pretended to be dangerous. Yeah, no. Finally, we're actually very dangerous. Yeah, we're living up to the hype now. Now, finally, we can get you in a room and we don't die, you're going to die. Um, no, I, you know what, initially I was like, this is fine, this is great, I get to spend some time at home. But then, because I'm quite a homebody anyway, like uh, to me it's not a treat to go to a concert or, you know, I don't like the masses. But then... About two weeks in, I realized, oh, shit, I really miss the audience. Like, you don't realize how much you're going to miss it till it's no longer there. Then you're like, I actually, you know, need to talk to a stranger. I need I need to say to a stranger, please don't touch me there, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I, I kind of had that. Um, and that's why I've been a lot more prolific online. Like I, I do videos every day and I talk to people in the comments. People can ask me questions and I send videos to people. Like people send me video clips and go, hey, my mom's really down. Can you send her a video? I'm like, what's her Skype ID? I'll, I'll give her a call, you know, because I've got the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been interacting a lot more. So in a way, I've really enjoyed being with the kids, you know, being the 1950s housewife, you know, I, I, I baked a lot. Like every second day I'd bake a bread and um, biscuits and, you know, like I've, I've got biscuit tins now that's filled with like ginger biscuits and, you know, chocolate chip, all the stuff the kids like is in there. Um, and, you know, I even did a bit of sewing, you know, one of the teddy bears' heads fell off. I could fix that, no worries. I'm like proper 1950s housewife and not touching a penis. Um and so I was like, I enjoyed that part of it and getting to actually know the kids just seven solid months with them. But I really miss traveling. I really, even now when I'm in this hotel room for two weeks and no one is allowed in and I'm not allowed out, I'm still like, I'm on the road, baby. I'm back. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> 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 I mean, being trapped in a hotel room does feel like mostly that is what being on tour is. Yeah. Like, you know, the show is such a small part of the day yeah. and you might go for a walk or eat some food or something, but mostly you're just inside a hotel room regardless. 100%. I mean, what I would do normally when I'm on tour, because I play golf, I took up golf because it's so just staying in a hotel and you can only see a city so many times. Like, you know, by the time you've been to Perth 15 times, you're like, I've seen it. 
now what? (laughs) (laughs) And then, so I started playing golf. So now in the mornings I wake up, I'll go have breakfast. Then we quickly go play golf. Even if we do nine holes, then have lunch and then play nine at a different course. or we travel in that time, whatever. But now it's just in this hotel room. But like you say, I've just been filling it wall-to-wall podcasts and interviews and talking to people's mums who are going through a tough time, <laughs> you know, just and doing heaps of those videos, you know, like my brother's getting married. Can you please send a video? I do heaps of those now. Yeah, I've been doing some of those as well. In the past, I never would have done that. I just wouldn't have had the time or yeah, the inclination. Yeah. And now I'm like... Yeah, why not? Yeah. What else was I going to – I mean, I can shoot it from the waist up. I don't have to get out of my pajamas. Exactly. Everything's fine. Happy birthday. Yeah. I, fuck it, you say waist up. I, some, some of them is just eye sockets for me. I'm like, I'm completely nude in most <laughs> – <laughs> I'm basically nude in all of those videos. I want you to know you're playing it at your wedding. I have no clothes on. <laughs> so is there any, I mean, obviously the not doing your job, not travelling part of it is an inconvenience, yeah. but you're somebody who has got to do your job plenty of times and you'll get to do it again in the future yeah. and you'll get to travel again in the future. Has there been any other downsides of it to you? Has there any, been anything that's been particularly difficult other than that? Oh, the only thing that you know I think really affects me is the fact that I don't have access to my family you know like my mom my sister they live on the south island in New Zealand um, I'm lucky I've got my brother close and he's in a essential job where um, you know he gets to travel around so even when we were on level four lockdown he could drive around same with my nephew and I could see them um, but otherwise, it's very just that being cut off from your network, you know, it's quite full on. And especially I find as, because as a, you know, I'm an immigrant, so I don't have a massive network. I don't have mates that I went to school with. I don't have that, you know, cluster of friends that you go, we've been friends with so many. I mean, I do have my best friend and her husband moved to New Zealand, but um, as luck would have it, everyone I know is essential workers. I'm the only one who does nothing (laughs) non-essential work we immediately worked out that what we do is completely non-essential work first thing that they were ready to get rid of let's shut down the clown festival nobody needs that and we're going to be the last ones back mate like (laughs) everyone is back and then we'll sort of come guys can we can we get to play um so yeah so they were essential weeks too so everyone's working it was just me um so yeah just that that being cut off from from friends and and my family and I couldn't just say to my sister just come up for the weekend you know just fly for the weekend and bring the boys and you know not seeing my my nephews and my niece because you know like we didn't want to expose each other's bubbles or, you know, so it was really hard. Uh, so in general, how are you in resilience? Like you appear publicly to be somebody who is, you know, quite full of life yeah. and quite enthusiastic and you throw yourself into things. Yeah. Is that also what you're like, you know, in your real life? Um, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm the same all the time. I do have down days, but I've also got a therapist that I talk to at least once a week and I text her and, you know, because I think, I don't think there's an adult alive who doesn't need someone with an actual certificate, an actual degree on the wall to talk to. Like we all need to talk to someone, you know, at some point that's not related to you that that you can go, hey, am I insane? You know, and just to kind of give you the tools to get through stuff. Like I said to her, um, I spoke to my therapist, I said, well, um, I'm going into 
quarantine now. Uh, I'm going to be away from my kids for eight weeks. I go, I'm probably going to, you know, because I, I run real high energy all the time, like real, I'm real up. But as you know, with real up, there's real lows. So I said to her, I'm, I'm, I want to avoid those lows. So what I do is I check in with her and I'll just text her and go, this has been my day. And then she'll go, be careful of this or remember to make sure you do this, get enough sleep, drink enough water, make sure, you know, because, you know, normally it would be make sure you get a walk or something. But of course, at the moment I can't. So I have to check in more, you know. So there's, I mean, I had a total spin out because I couldn't get a coffee mug. In the first few days, like there's only these little teacups in this hotel, like real tight. I mean, I've got the hands of a four-year-old, and when I hold that cup, you can't see it. It's like a shot of coffee every time. So when I asked them for a coffee mug, they said, no, we don't do that because it's not part of our quarantine plan. I'm like, a coffee mug? They go, yeah, we have to sterilize it. Okay, bitch, I will break it at the end and pay for it. Just send me a coffee mug. And they wouldn't. And I just I got so enraged at the fact that I couldn't get a coffee mug that I, and I'll show you on Skype here, I've got a coffee mug now with my manager's photo on. Here they are. Because <laughs> then... <laughs> She just went, oh, because I found out. I said, this is utter bullshit. I can't even get a coffee mug. I'm not demanding at all. Like, I never ask for anything. I'm usually happy with whatever I get. Like, they go, oh, you can order groceries. You can get Uber Eats. I go, but you guys give us food, so it's fine. I haven't ordered anything outside of what they supply because I'm like, it's being supplied. You know, why would I need more? But a coffee cup, I couldn't believe I couldn't get a mug. So she made all these mugs with her face on it for me. Just so every time I drink, I can remember how pissed off I was on that day. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, so there's definite, you know, ups and downs. But I think if you can if you can recognise, look, I'm going to be a basket case, you know, and see, like, shit's going to go down. If And, and so I pre, pre-plan and I pre-empt and I sort of go in and, and get the tools before I get to that point. But it doesn't mean I don't lose my shit every now and again, like with the mugs. <laughs> But <laughs> <laughs> so it must be a big decision to, in a time like this, even travel, you know, to Australia and, and go through that process. Was it something that you had to think about a lot? No, because I thought, okay, I don't know how long, no one knows how long this virus is going to be around. And as it is, you know, like I don't do radio, I don't do other shit. So basically for seven months, I haven't really worked. And I thought, I need to stay in the game. You know, we need to find new ways of doing what we do. So I've been doing some, um, you know, Zoom TV shows and, you know, and, and that's fine. But then I thought, I need to, if this is our new reality where we have to travel and then quarantine, and then I might as well get involved and do it, you know, because I'm still hoping to tour at the end of the year in Australia. So the closer we get to that date, the closer I go, what was I thinking? Rescheduling to December. I should have rescheduled five years from now, you know. But we, uh, mate, I re- I re- I rescheduled some shows like from Comedy Festival to end of October. It turns out that those shows are going to have to be rescheduled again. again. Yeah. And by rescheduled, I mean probably are never going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. that is just just knock it out of the park. There. See, or just come to New Zealand because I rescheduled my tour New Zealand to October, and I can tour now because we have no community transmission. Touchwood, so you can do big theatres. You can so, and, but of course, as luck would have it, I've got like thirty shows scheduled in Australia and three in New Zealand. So there's going to be a bit of a 
shift there where New Zealand will now be getting <laughs> well, you should do it like, so at the moment in the AFL, because people can't play in Melbourne, there's 10 Melbourne teams who are now based in Queensland. Yeah. So they're still Melbourne teams, but they're playing home games out of Queensland because of the quarantine. Yeah. You should just reschedule your shows, but in New Zealand. So it is the Perth show. Yeah. But, but it's just in New Zealand. It's in Whangarai. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Perth Whangarai. <laughs> 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 so what are what are you going to do? Because I'd love to know where your head's at with everything. Because in the you know overseas, you're seeing people experiment with socially distanced rooms and crowds. There's people doing driving comedy shows. Yeah. I've noticed that seems to be a big thing that's touring at the moment. Yeah. Where's your personal head at when it comes to performing and how performing is going to look for the next few months and maybe a year or so? You know what? Uh, for me personally, I'm like I would rather just ice it. You know, like just shove it and go look that's not live stand-up is not going to happen for me here um because i can't think of anything worse than not being like close to the audience I, that interaction is so vital for me you know i don't want to see your your gums while you're sitting in your car eating some kfc you know while you're listening to me that's not you know um so i would rather just not do live stand-up then and just do um, you know, either Zoom TV or sit in quarantine and then go sit in a studio with three other people and do a TV show with no audience. Um, and then when we come back in a year or so, then have a massive tour. But yeah, I, I can't. I, uh, this whole driving thing is just, it's too much. And everyone's like, oh, you should do a Zoom show. No, I would rather dig poop out of my dog with a stick than do that. <laughs> and I can tell you, my dog will not be into it. I, well, maybe not pre-quarantine, but you never know. Yeah, maybe like, might, have, might have changed his mind around that during the quarantine I haven't seen period. joy in my dog's eyes. You know, I miss that. You don't even think about the stuff that you miss. Like, my dog hasn't been excited to see me in seven months because I never leave. You know, so you can't come back. So the dog's just like, so we're all just here the whole time? Like, I don't know what the dog and the cat get up to when we're not there, you know. And I say, I feel like the two of them kind of look at us and go, they're never going to go. You know, like when you were a kid, you would do stuff. As soon as your parents go, you go, oh, my God, we're going to, as soon as mum and dad go, we're doing that. And I feel like our pets are the same, but now they can't do that because we're there and the whole time they're like, when will they fuck off so we can get into it? But, you know, for all we know, they walk on their hind legs, you know, they're just walking around making a cup of tea and talk to each other. But they don't. Well, ours are the opposite. Ours, ours have become entirely dependent on us. Like they are so used to the idea that we've been here nothing but 24 hours a day and the only times we leave the house is normally to walk the dogs so they get to come on that as well. <laughs> yeah. Like there used to be whole days where they would be home by themselves. You know, yeah. I'd go out in the morning, come back in the afternoon. They wouldn't have seen me. Yeah. They used to be able to fill in their own time. Now I can't walk to the kitchen yeah. without one going, what's going on in yeah. there? What are you doing Let's in go. There? Let's go. I should come He's as well. I should go. I should go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can tell. I can tell my pets are like, get out, just go. But I think it's because um, I've got a three-year-old who wrestles the dog to within an inch of her life. Like, I'm so glad we picked a Labrador and not a pit bull because 
it would have been, you know, like <laughs> it would have been real interesting. But yeah, he wrestles that poor dog all the time. You can see in her eyes that she's like, can you just put that thing in my cage for an hour? Just an hour to let me rest, you know? I mean, that's why I've had to say to my kids, you can go on your iPads whenever you want, just so the pets can rest. Do you think that this period of time will change anything about your comedy? So I'm interested to know whether you think, you know, the will there be a deeper appreciation of the audience? Will you end up talking about different things? Or do you think that it will probably just be you'll, you'll end up coming out of it, a similar comedian to how you went into it? No, I think I will be different because I... I look at um, even some of the videos and stuff that I do now and some of it I go, this is just informative, right? Like I'm just um, – because my, my comedy is so – it's very storytelling, right? So even more storytelling than your average storytelling. So then now when I do the videos, like I literally just give them a tip on something or I go, this is what I do. And then people just – like it goes off. They're like, oh, my God, this is great. And I, and I think – I'll relax more and try and, you know, because during my shows, when I write a show, every, after every show I sort of sit down and I try and, and wedge in more punches, you know, more punchlines in and, and try and get. So if they're, they're not laughing the whole time, I'm like, okay, something, there was they were quiet there. Like I don't give them the opportunity to just listen to shit, you know. Whereas now I think I can just talk to them. I can just give them something to listen to. I don't need to be punching their guts out the whole hour, you know. Um, people are okay with just listening. So I think... Okay, so I'm interested in that because you're someone who... And look, you talk about this as much as you're comfortable, as with everything, yeah. of course. But I'm so fascinated. Like, I'm sure that there's a lot of people who like this podcast who are like, oh, God, he's going to ask a comedian about their comedy craft again. But it, it's what I like. And yeah. it's my podcast and I do it for fucking Mate, free. You, so I get to ask the questions. That you do whatever the fuck I, you want. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the responding to imaginary critics stage of pandemic lockdown. <laughs> so. oh, I have to tell you, this is what my mum always says. This is, this is the shove your tools up your ass um, part of your life. My mum always tells us this when you get that preemptive fuck you going, you know. My mum says it's like there was this guy driving on a dirt road and his car broke down. And he got out and he had a look at the hood and he's like, oh, this, you know, like say the head came loose and he's like, fuck, I need a spanner. And then he sees his farmhouse in the distance and the lights are on and he goes, I'm going to walk there and ask the farmer for a spanner. So he starts walking and then in his mind, he's, you know, the, he, he starts talking to himself. He's like, what if the farmer doesn't want to give him a spanner? And then he starts working through all these scenarios. Like, what if he knocks on the door and the farmer goes, no, you can't have my spanner. Why do you want the spanner? And then he goes, he gets more and more worked up the closer to the house he gets. And he goes, what if the farmer, what if I knock on the door and the farmer tells him to fuck off? He's like, yeah. So he knocks on the door and the farmer opens the door and he goes, take your spanner and shove it up your fucking ass. Fuck you. And he turns around and he walks away. So <laughs> nothing has happened. It's all in this guy's head. But fuck the farmer. So you're at that stage. You're at the shove the spanner up your ass stage. In the... Uh in respect to shoving the spanner up your ass to the audience of this podcast, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm very fascinated by you and your approach to stand-up. It's, it's something that, you know, we've spoken about a little bit over the years that we've known each other, but I've also got to yeah. witness, you know, your career grow in such an incredible way and 
like know that there's been a lot of planning and craft behind it. I know you're meticulous in your preparation and material. Like, you know, you really don't do a show until the show is ready to go. And you also tend to have, while you're doing one show, you tend to have next year's show almost written already. Now, am I being incorrect in in saying anything I've said then? No, no, that's all. That's all good because at the moment I've got mm. two shows in the tank and the one uh, that's on the plank. So what I do is I try and stagger. <laughs> I try and stagger the shows as much as I can. Right. <laughs> that's so, the name of your so, next book, by the way. Two in the tank, one on the plank. <laughs> it's also the name of my sex tape. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so what I do is the hardest thing for me is to come up with something that I want to talk about, right? So, um, so like as soon as I have a title, so say loser, then I go, okay, I want to talk about that, and the, then in my mind I go, okay, the idea for it comes from the fact that I my nephews always talk about you loser, like it's always negative, like you know they call each other loser all the time when you're around. Um, especially young guys and teenage guys, it's all you know, loser, loser, like winning is such a big thing. So then I just start thinking about that. And then I have a thing on my phone in the notes section that says loser and the year. And then I start making notes. Every time I think about something, I put it in there or I make an audio record of it. And then so that when I sit down, like now I'm sitting down, and I'm writing a show for New Zealand called All the Rage. And um, I'd actually already written the show, but then when the pandemic hits, I feel like there's a lot more anger now because it's just about anger in our society and how people are just so pissed off now. And it's like, you know, you can now go, like back in the day, if you wanted to go for anger management, you basically had to go for court-ordered anger management. Now you can just go to your therapist and they can do like behavioural therapy with you and to try and get that rage out of you because it's so prevalent. Like everyone's pissed off. And now I feel after this pandemic, like the whole world's going to have PTSD. So anyway, so now I'm rewriting that some of that stuff. Um, so but then I just have it on all these different, like I've got all these, <laughs> I've got three different cell phones that I keep one almost just for one show and the next for the other show and I try not to pollute uh, and one is just, you know, for actual phone calls. Like, um, <laughs> You're like a drug dealer or a guy who's having a series of affairs, except they're just yeah, different yeah. shows. Does, does one, yeah, one, one show gets jealous when a particularly good bit of material goes to another phone? Oh, hang on, this is, no, yeah. this is more a yeah. all the rage idea. Yeah, no, but you know what? It's because, you know, when you have a joke and you go and you're doing a show and you go, fuck, I should just say that joke. It's going so well in the show. I just want to put a, sh- a joke in here. But I, the, the discipline, like, I wish I was a, as disciplined in exercise and diet as I was with my shows where I go, I'm not giving you that joke. That's next year's joke. Um, and if I use it now, I'll burn it up. You know, so I sort of hold back on it and it has to go in that show. And if it's really good, then that'll be the anchor for that show. Like I try not to, you know, cross-contaminate. The, that other show needs to work on its own anchor joke. This is this show's anchor joke, you know. So, But then I literally just sit and I do a mind map and I write the show and I do a set list and I keep to it. And I'll add, after every show I sit down and I, I go, okay, can this joke can grow this way and this is, you know, so I sort of adjust every joke after every show. This is why sometimes when people come and see a show, like at the beginning, say, of Melbourne, 
I almost want to say to that audience, come back in the last week. It'll be, you know, a much stronger show. Like the the whole concept is still the same and the end result and the reason why I wrote it is still the same. But the jokes are different. You know, it's sort of a better and more punchy and I sort of know the point that I, you know, and the, the actual, you know, Punchline. There is something though, and maybe this isn't your experience, but I, I, I think that there is also something great about seeing someone while they're still grappling with it a little bit. And it, like, maybe the yeah. fact that it's sharper and tighter at the end is great. You know, you've got an extra punchline yeah. or two in that bit, but you have a connection to it earlier when you're trying to work it out that you maybe don't have when you're just yeah. replicating it the same as you did it the night before yeah. and the same as you're going to do it the night after? Yeah, I get I like, and I try and be honest with the audience. I go, um, this is new because when I do my show the first time to an audience, that's also the first time I hear it. I don't try out material before. So if I, if you come in the first week, that is the first week of that show. I've never done it anywhere else. I've never tried you know, ten minute bit here and there. That is why. It. Why do why why do you do it like that? Because that it's the same as that. I don't want to burn up material, so I write an hour and a half every year, an hour for the for touring, and then a half an hour for pubs and you know for normal gigs, like just if I do spots or whatever. So then I'll write thirty minutes of you know pub stuff, which is dirtier and punchier, and then an hour, you know, of actual show. So I feel if I if I then take some of that stuff and run it in front of a pub or, you know, then I feel like I've sort of dirtied that bit, like it doesn't go there, you know. I like to keep shit tidy. <laughs> I don't need your fucking judge. <laughs> oh, no, I love it. Don't get me wrong, I love it. So where do you think that this ethic um, to write so much because for a lot of people, and again, this is, you know, a bit inside comedy, but mm. I, I love talking to you about it, this idea of writing a new show every year and, you're, as you said, like an hour and a half of material, so you're writing your touring show and you're writing your club set for a yeah. year. So that's a lot of material a year. Yeah. Is part of it because you came to comedy later than some and you felt like you needed to get right into it or is it just a part of your personality and this is how you've always been? Um, I, I think I'm really good on a deadline. I used to work for the newspaper for seven year, uh, for 12 years and then in advertising for seven. So I think I'm really good on a deadline, like I'm, you know. Um, but also I just think, yeah, I, I've got more shit in the tank because I've got more stories, you know, because I was in my mid-30s when I started. So it's like, yeah. Um, but also I think that 30 minutes, the pub stuff, that's sort of changeable because that, that is topical stuff. Like whatever goes on in the news, whatever, I adjust that 30 minutes almost weekly. You know, I don't even gig in pubs as much as I used to, but I still like to keep it fresh and up to date. Like if anything goes on, um, it's the same as like if, if I do a corporate, I like to do the first 10 minutes just on them as a company. And it's not because, you know, I'm really into the industry. I just think it forces me to write. And it's like with anything, the more you do it, the more you can do. You know, like if you, if you start doing something, um, you know, and you do it more and more and more, then it just, that muscle just kind of, you know, gets going. So that's why, that's why I'm scared to get into exercise because I think I'll be a fucking Olympian in two years. <laughs> so, 
Um, and you can't say this, or maybe you can say this, maybe you have more confidence than I do when it comes to saying things like this, but, I mean, you're a superstar in the world of stand-up comedy now. Like, you are really, you know, at the top of the industry. People just absolutely love your stuff. Like, you know, you're dominating really in a world sense now. You know, your Netflix special is up. It's doing great all over the place. But you had a whole other life and career before this. I'm really interested in when you were living... So how old were you when you started doing stand-up? Uh, 33. Okay, so you're 33 when you start doing stand-up. Yeah. And whatever age you are now, yeah. like mid-40s, Yeah, mid-40s, yeah. Right? you one of the most famous comedians in the world at the moment, mm. which is just, like, amazing. So take me back to when you're in your 20s. Could you ever have imagined that that was what you were going to do with your life or were you imagining that that was what you were doing with your life and just doing something else? Oh, hell no. I didn't. I honestly, coming up to, you know, sort of even moving to New Zealand, I'd never been to a stand-up comedy gig. I didn't even know it was a thing. You know when you find out a job is a job and you go, that's a thing? Like, I didn't know that's a thing. You know, there's a guy collecting the little rings off the top of the aluminium cans. Who knew? You know, and then you find out something's a thing and you sort of... So I had no idea. I was working for the newspaper. I... um as a, you know, designer, I worked in a pub, I, you know, just normal what you do when you're in your 20s, you know, and um, it never even occurred to me, I moved to New Zealand and then when I was working at an ad agency, there was an English guy who was a copywriter who was in my creative team and he was obsessed with stand-up comedy and he would go, oh, my God, you have to go do stand-up comedy. You're so funny because I would do – I would sit next to the sound system, you know, the big um, sound system, and I would work out as because I could see people walk across the road in the mornings to come into work, and I would play sort of theme music for them as they walked in and, <laughs> and, and I would introduce them, but just sort of as a, you know, to get the team hyped up, you know. And I would just, and then we'd always have a work in progress meeting in the mornings, have a cup of coffee, and then we start with our day. But I used to go, if we just start off real light and everyone has a good laugh, and we were so tight as a team, you know. So then he'd go, fuck, man, you have to go do stand up comedy. And I'd go, no thanks. Like I'd never even crossed my mind. I didn't even know what the hell it was. Or, um, and then, I mean, obviously I'd seen some stuff on TV, but, it, you know, when you see something, you go, yeah, all right, you know. Like, I don't know what goes into creating Harpeck toilet cleaner, but I've seen the ads, you know. So, <laughs> so, so, so then I, um, when I left the one agency to go over to the other, that guy, Leon, he um, bought me a coffee machine. He was in charge of the leaving gift, so he bought me a coffee machine and uh, he made up this fake contract that I had to sign in front of everyone and I still have the contract. I um it was it's glued into my living card and he um made me sign it but he had booked me in for an open mic night at the comedy club and he had booked seats for like seventy people that worked there. You know, like he said, Who wants to come to stand up gig? I'm getting urged to go do it. So then I and I'd only been in New Zealand for a couple of years, so I didn't want to look like a dickhead. So I was like, yeah, all right. So I signed the contract. I said, I can do it. Like, how hard can it be? So that was the Friday. And then on the Monday was St. Patrick's Day. And um, I just wrote down, it was five minutes, the open mic. So I wrote down some stuff that I thought would be funny. Four minutes. I only did four minutes of material. I tested it on my phone because um, I thought I'd give them a minute to laugh. <laughs> you know, sort mm-hmm. of work that in. <laughs> 
How arrogant. <laughs> and has that, has, that, has, that, has that number gone up or down over the years? How much is space you leave for them answer, to laugh? I refuse to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> I now only ride to 20 minutes. Right? <laughs> they better laugh at 40. <laughs> No, now I know more is more. Because <laughs> a minute is really long. <laughs> you better write that whole five minutes. You better just go ahead and not believe in yourself. <laughs> so, so, but I wrote it. Uh, scariest thing I'd ever done. I did it. Afterwards, we had a few beers and then uh, went home, you know, like it was, people were laughing, but of course people were laughing. 70 of my colleagues were there, you know. And then the next morning I got a call from the owner of the club to say that I'm through to the next round. Um, and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. It was a work thing. And it was Raw Quest. They were looking for new talent. So I was like, oh. Mm. I said, no, I'm not interested in that. Thanks. I'm already nailing life. You go ahead and give that to someone that's interested in comedy. And uh, <laughs> and then he goes, but you're so funny. He goes, everyone was laughing. I said, mate, I knew 70 people in that audience. That's why they were laughing. Like it was stacked in my favour. And he goes, I was in the audience. I was laughing. I don't know you. And I thought, oh, okay. And then he goes, you should come back. You should, you know, this is a great opportunity. And you, and, and because I don't believe in living with regret, right? So I was like, he goes, come back. Don't bring anyone and let's see how it goes. So I went back. I didn't even tell Leon. I wrote another five minutes this time because I thought that's how it worked. Every time you do comedy, you have to write new material. That material is now gone forever because that 80 people that saw you will remember. Um, Who you know aren't going to be at that show, yeah, by the way. Yeah, Who you yeah, guaranteed yeah, aren't going to be at that ever, show. Ever. So They're never coming back to see you. <laughs> so, so anyway, so... I wrote new new five minutes of material and then, yeah, I made it through to the next round again and then um, after three gigs I won Best Newcomer. And I, But then I thought that was it, you know, I've clocked comedy. I've done it now. I've won, so it's finished, you know. And then, but people kept booking me for gigs and so I was like, oh, okay, I'll just keep going. Um, I had at this point told Leon, of course, that I'd gone back and that I'd won Best Newcomer and... Uh, yeah, so after a year, after my first gig, I had to give up advertising because comedy was just completely taking over because I immediately uh, went over to Australia. I came over to Australia because I thought that's what everyone did. For every festival I was here, I did Adelaide, I did, you know, and I thought everyone else is doing the same because I, I didn't understand the rules in the industry and that you have to sort of do a certain amount of open mics and you have to, I was like, oh, there's a festival People go do comedy overseas, I'll go do that. So I just started doing it. I mean, I sucked a lot the first year or two, you know, it wasn't very good. But um, the more I did it, of course, the better I got. But it's like with any job, like even if you work in a warehouse stacking condoms, the first year you're not going to be great. The second and third year you can do a million a day. You know. It's also a good example, I think, for people that sometimes I feel like people are held back from trying something because they feel like they need to learn everything about it before they try it. You know, they need to... Yeah. Like, I get asked by, you know, people who are doing their first gig and they'll write to me asking for advice and I will take some time to give them what I think is good advice, but I will say to them, I won't yeah. give you advice on half the things you've asked me about because none of them are important right now and they're things that you just need to yeah. just start and you'll find those things out and you'll work it out along the way. And if you want to send me another email in six months or a year when this thing is actually relevant, yeah. then do it then. But it's not something you need to know now. But your example shows even more so, and I think it's relevant to a lot of industries, which is 
sometimes not knowing how things work can be advantageous to you creating your own path. 100%. And you know what? I almost think it really helped being in that creative industry and uh, as a designer before because it's almost like you don't need to know the rules. You just go with what looks good, feels good, and if it sits natural, you know, like then it was like in your pen, now it's in your mouth, you know. It's the same. It's like people offer all the time they go – and even Leon, him and I just spoke, he lives in Spain now, but he said – do you have someone to help you write? And I go, no, I don't have anyone. Like people offer, they go, I can help you write comedy or I've got some jokes. And I'm like, no, thanks. Because I just feel like your words won't sit right in my mouth. You know, like how are you going to be a fat lesbian immigrant and make it, you know, sell it for me? Like I, I, that's why I like to tell my stories or the things that I find funny because it sits right in my mouth. So do what sits right in your mouth. So the conceit of this podcast is that I ask people if they have a life philosophy of some kind. It can be in regard to anything, work, love, raising your kids, you know, death, life, whatever it is. But do you have some sort of guiding principle by which you live? Well, I've I've got two actually. I've got one because – and my TED Talk is based on this one, where I honestly, I don't believe in living with regret because when I was in high school, um, I got expelled from boarding school and then I went to a different school, like closer to home, and um, I had a real bad fucking attitude, like real bad attitude. And then um, a teacher said to me one day, she goes, you know, there's no greater waste of time than regret. And that sort of just really hit me. You know, when someone says something and you go, that just fits. Like, I get that. Um, and so I, that's why I wasn't afraid to go from advertising to comedy. And I, you know, like when people go, is this it for you? I go, I don't know, because who knows? You know, I might turn 60 and go, I do want to be a brain surgeon and then go back to university. But then there's also the other thing that I had that my brother and I watched this movie when we were like, I think I was just in high school and it's called Samantha. And the whole thing in the movie is she keeps saying this thing that says, if they can do it, I can do it or it can't be done. And then she tries all these different things. Like it's just like a teen movie, but I really like that concept. I like the thought about that, you know, like I honestly believe there's nothing I can't do, you know. Like I know my own limits and I know there's certain things that I won't enjoy so I won't attempt it and I won't regret it. So those two things I think go hand in hand for me and it's like if, if you know, like I honestly believe I could be a brain surgeon. Yeah, I'm going to need to go to university and I'm going to need to work a few years towards it but I believe I could be a brain surgeon. Like I've got tiny hands and really good eyes, you know, like that's I think all you need. I mean that's so, all you need to be a brain <laughs> surgeon and all you need to be an epidemi- epidemiologist at the moment is a Facebook account. So it's just a bit easier as well. Am I'm I saying. right? <laughs> yeah. I mean it helps. You could be a professor in it if you've got a Reddit account too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do you – is appealing about stand-up as someone who didn't dream of doing it, who really, I mean, you know, like, you know, signed a fake contract to do stand-up comedy, which is almost like the devil coming to you in the form of Leon (laughs) at the advertising agency and saying you can be the biggest comedian in the world if you just sign this imaginary contract. Yeah, I mean, I did have to give him my soul, which was weird, but (laughs) I gave it gladly. Worth it, I would say. I think anyone would take that deal in retrospect. If Leon's got some 
more imaginary contracts. We're happy to pass them around on his behalf. But um, no, so what is it that the thing that brought you to it was that clearly you were good at it and it's very nice to just be good at something for a start. But what was it that kept you doing it? You know what? It's that immediate reaction. It's that, you know, I tell a joke, they laugh, and then it's it's that immediate feel good, isn't it? It's like it's like a hug. It's like you know, you do something, you immediately get it back, and sometimes, but the same. If it's not good, you get that back too. But then, because you're in control, you're there. You're like, I can change this. You know, I can fix this. I can, I can make it better. You know. But also, what I love about it is there's nothing left in the inbox for tomorrow once you're finished you know you've done that you're done then tomorrow is another day it's like not like sometimes when um like I remember if I had like a big job you know like you're working on Holden or whatever and you go oh god I still have to go add mud on the trucks for the next three weeks you know like that would be the job and the deadline you know there's not none of that there's no you know you go out you do it it's finished you feel good they feel good and that's a thing like and you would have it too where people get in touch and they go I was having such a bad week or I was having such a low day and then you made me laugh and I felt better and or you you shared a story that made me feel and it's that kind of stuff that overrides any of the shit that you can get you know also from on but the the positive stuff overrides the negative a hundred to one there is something a great joy in being contactable in that way because I'm sure that Bono has written a few songs that people have played at their weddings or you know like this is the night but nobody probably thinks they can write to Bono they think they can get in contact with you and I so they're happy to to send you a Facebook (laughs) message and share a story that they wouldn't be bothered passing on to Bono (laughs) they are not wrong (laughs) like the amount of people that now though it's like um, you know, sort of the more followers I get, then people go, I know it's not you responding and it's someone in your, I go, no, it's me. Like, I'm not Adele. There's not a team of people answering my emails and stuff. It's me. Um, and sometimes some people just 100% don't believe it. Like, I'll take a photo of myself in my pajamas and send it to them and go, it's me, mate. My- <laughs> I know. Do you ever feel like you're really disappointing people though? Like most people are excited about it, but there are some people who are just like, oh, this has actually lowered me in my estimations of where I thought you were in your life. Yes, yes, I definitely get that where you go, oh, this is a bit of a, I almost like that you were approachable. Um, But it's like, but then sometimes I think I need to be more, you know, especially now because I get heaps of messages every day and I try and respond to as many as possible. Even sometimes if it's just a wave or a dancing, you know, gif or whatever. But like Ronnie Cheng said to me uh, a couple of weeks ago, he goes, I go, how has it changed, you know, sort of your interaction with people? Like, do you still talk to people? He goes, I never talk to people. I never answer yeah. them. He goes, I've never had an interaction where I thought, this is good. This is better. <laughs> you know, like I've left this better than I've entered it. He goes, I just don't even bother. And sometimes I'm like, it's the same. It's like anti-vaxxers will get in touch now because I burn them a bit on the special. And, yeah, um, they're, you know, they're like, active, I, aren't they? I, they? I did some anti-vaxxer stuff like a few years ago. They're a bit quieter and- now. <laughs> 
Man. This virus has really shut them up a bit. I mean, well, I've got to be honest with you because I live near a town called Mullumbimby and people will know in Australia and you probably know enough about Mullumbimby to know that that's the sort of place where, you know, they're not that keen on the polio vaccine. So whether there's one for COVID or not, it's going to not interrupt their day to day. They're not going to wear shoes to the supermarket. So they're not going to wear a mask in public is kind of the attitude where I yeah. live. But it's the anti-vaxxers more than any other like of all the material that I've done over the years, when I did something yeah. on like anti-vaxxers like three or four years ago, now it literally every day after the show I would have 10 or 15 messages from people. Yeah, yeah. I get that a lot. Like, um, you know, but I don't, I just immediately block them. I'm like, you know, trying to debate with anti-vaxxers, trying to tell dog shit not to stink. It, it just will not change a thing, um, you know. <laughs> but now the thing that I find fascinating is I get these these people who go, you know, they literally, they're picking up this fucking turd that doesn't belong to them and taking it for a walk. And it's like people get in touch and go, well, my kid had a bad reaction to it. Like I just had a woman who goes, I used to be a big fan, but my daughter had a, you know, because I always start with that, I used to be a big fan of yours. I'm like, I'm sure you fucking weren't. You've never been to a show of mine. Otherwise, you'd know I always burn anti-vaxxers. You know, and they go, my daughter had a bad reaction to a vaccine, so she can't be vaccinated. I go, well, I'm obviously not fucking talking to you. I'm talking about those morons who think, um, you know, Facebook is a scientist's handbook um, and their friend, you know, who doesn't wear shoes or only has two teeth knows more than a fucking scientist. So um, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to people who make the choice to put their children other children's lives at risk. Those are the people I'm talking to, not to you. So fucking move along, you know, but those people too. So this one said to me, she goes, when I said to her, I'm clearly not talking to you. You're not doing it out of choice. You're doing it out of a result of a bad reaction. So that's different. You know, your child is now in a different bracket than people whose kids are fine, you know. So, but I just blocked her because she's like, I hope this is just one of your team. I'm like, what fucking team, lady? <laughs> Well, what I love is, uh, so I used to, it was only real material that would have regular walkouts. And so you would actually yeah. see people get up and decide to leave during this, you know, routine. Uh, to to the point yeah. where I then had this like amazing sort of five minute bit, like about them walking out and how we were all much safer because of that, yeah. and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, it became... Yeah almost the best bit of the show because, of course, with the audience as well, they always felt yeah. like they were experiencing something in that moment, you know, even though it was something that I had done before, yeah. it felt really Im- – and so then on the nights when no one walked out, I would always be really disappointed that I wasn't going to get to do that five minutes of material. I would, like, yeah. pause, just yeah. hoping. Go on, anyone want to come on? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you yeah, see, I did because in like in the special day, I go because the first time I did my anti-vaxxer stuff, um, I did a thing where I go, um, you know, so in Auckland I did it, and like twelve people got up and walked out, you know, and then I even had them lift their house lights so these people didn't injure themselves. But then in that show, I go when I was in Auckland, I did the show and people walked out. I go and the whole auditorium went. I said, like, I'm supposed to fight them. And I went, no, no, don't do that. These people, let them go. They've got sick kids at home. (laughs) And then the whole, like, they all just went off. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I do that, <laughs> and it always gets a big. So I, I was like, I cannot risk no one walking out at this point. So I wrote it so that you know this is what happened there. So you know what's what's going on in Auckland because I'm not risking these fuckers not walking out because I need to use that line. <laughs> Um, it is very interesting to me. There's a great Joan Rivers documentary that I actually saw in New Zealand with an amazing New Zealand comedian um, uh, and uh, that I was friends with and we went to see this, you know, screening of this Joan Rivers documentary and there's a moment in it where somebody gets really offended about a joke that Joan Rivers has made about someone in a wheelchair or something similar and they, you know, they say, yeah. well, my you know, kids in a wheelchair and I find that offensive, which of course of course, they have the right to do. But as, yeah. as Joan Rivers makes the point, you've just sat through an hour of her making fun of everyone else in the world and you were fine with all that. Yeah. Like I have no problem with the idea that you're yeah. – like when people message me and they go, well, I like your other stuff and you're like, well, then this isn't about that routine not being funny. This is about you having a personal difference to me in this yeah. routine. Like, you know, like I laughed yeah. at all the other stuff but this wasn't funny. Yeah, it was. I wouldn't keep doing it if it wasn't funny. Everyone else was laughing. You just yeah. didn't like it. Yeah, this is getting on your dick. Yeah. Not everyone else's dick. <laughs> yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. But I don't I need to hear about that. That's not my problem. That's your but this problem. But is, this is that, you know, that bit that Ricky Gervais does where he goes, um, you know, it's like when you see a sign, uh, you know, he says, because I've got 23 million people following me and then, um, you know, I put out a tweet and someone gets offended by it. He goes, I'm not targeting you. I don't even know you. I don't, he says, this is the same as when you walk into town square and you see there's a sign for, you know, um, guitar lessons and you take the number, you rip a bit off and you go home and you ring that number and you go, I don't fucking want guitar lessons. So you're like, it's obviously not for you, Dickie. <laughs> it's fine. You don't even. You don't need to take up everything. Right. <laughs> um, okay. So you deal with criticism okay, it feels like. Does it, do you still carry it around yeah. in your head though? Are you one of those people or are you able to just, you know, walk away from the computer and let it live there and get on with the rest of your life? No, I mean, it's some of it still hurts. Like, it, it does piss me off. And, um, like, I, I have to immediately delete and block, you know, to prevent myself from replying and getting into a thing. Cause I am quite, um, hang the fuck on. I'm that lady. Um, so I'm trying not to be. And that's where, where my therapist comes in real handy too, where I can go, I'm so pissed off today. And, and then she goes, yeah, but that's, that's me, you know, um, picking up someone else's dog shit, you know, if it's not your dog shit, like it's their issue, you can never, and I'm at a point now where I'm like, you can't keep everyone happy. It's impossible. Like even if you try just to keep, take five of your closest friends and keep them happy all the time, it's impossible. It cannot be done. So just embrace that part of it and go, you know what, if you, if I don't piss off a certain portion of people, I'm probably not doing my job right. You know, you need to ruffle a few feathers now and again. What is next on do you have ambitions when it comes to your comedy is there something that you haven't managed to do on stage yet that you still think you know I, I I have some I guess you know a next evolution up my sleeve in what it is that you aspire to do no I, I you know I, I mean 
and again, I think it comes back to me not knowing what is, you know, what's out there or what the industry, because even today, I'm like, I don't follow any handbook. I don't know what the others are doing. I'm, you know, and it's a very solitary industry. Like you're by yourself 90% of the time. There's no one that you can go in a meeting and go, hey, what do you guys think I should be doing now? So I just fucking do whatever. Um, so no, as, as, as for, you know, actual stand up stuff, as long as it stays funny and the audiences keep coming, I'm, I'm happy to carry on as is. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, I'm very careful not to, you know, cause if you have, uh, if you're part of any group, like, you know, cause I'm part of the LGBTQI plus, community and the immigrant community and fat community and you know there's so many and women and like heaps of people go you should do a thing about how the immigration system and I'm like I'm not doing that I'm no one's fucking soapbox <laughs> <laughs> you know I know every we all have our fucking issues and gay people have issues and straight people have issues I'm not fucking doing that on stage like I'm not gonna fight an issue from the stage I just feel like you know, people have a tough week. They have a tough life. They have a tough year. They have a, they want to come out to a comedy show to have a laugh, not to listen to me addressing fucking issues. That's what politicians do. That ain't my vibe. So if you want me to, hey, you, we should be passing along this petition. You should get on board with that. I go, why don't you fuck yourself? Like, I am not pushing your petition. Even if I truly believe in something, like, I, I will never push it on my social media platforms, you know, except for like the stuff that I find funny that I know I can make a joke out of, I'll do it. But I'm not pushing your shit um, on my stuff. So that's never going to change. I'm not, you know, it's a stage, not a soapbox. Get over it. Um, I, I'm interested in that though because uh, I think that you are, you make d- different powerful statements because I think that there is room in life for people to be, you know, speaking about those issues directly, you know, more acceptance for the immigration, it, yeah, the immigrant community or um, the, you know, more acceptance for, you know, the queer community. Like all those things are good things to want and aspire to and some yeah. people change them by putting petitions together and some people change them by, I mean, I would argue the work you do by being you and having the wide appeal that you have does as much for acceptance of those communities as that other work that is equally important. It is just different work presented in different ways. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but I, I don't wanna I don't wanna push that on the side. Like I like in, in and in every show that I've done thus far, I do. Like I, I address bullying in the last one, loser, and I address acceptance in like in every in Man Up it was about, you know, um the the LGBTQI community. It's about, you know, accepting people, even if you don't understand shit, just don't be an asshole. Like, you know, so in every show I do address stuff but I do it like I say what feels comfortable in my mouth your shit will never feel comfortable in my mouth you need to find your own like if you think going around with your petition and just asking other people to share it that ain't it you need to find your own soapbox and push your own shit like it can't other people's voices will never feel good in your mouth so, you know, you need to open your own. I love it. Um, I have some uh, regular questions that I ask on this show and so I need to get to those ones. Um, okay. What do you think happens when we die? Nothing. We're rotting the earth. That's it. <sighs> you know, is, that, is that it? Is that all? 
Is that, okay, no, that's fine. <laughs> that is a perfectly acceptable answer to that question. Um, you know, you didn't perhaps need to deliver it in the <laughs> fatalistic deadpan way that you did that really made me question my entire existence in that moment. <laughs> no, I think your soul never. leaves your body, but your body just rots in the earth <laughs> and then your soul goes out and it's assigned to a fresh baby. <laughs> is that better? <laughs> No, that's worse. That's definitely worse. Uh, okay. So I, I love this though because that's also what I believe. I wouldn't have expressed it perhaps oh, so. so just oh, wait, wait, wait. You just, you just... But I do also believe what you're saying. Um, so here is my question yeah. then. Life life is very uh, magical is probably the wrong word, but there is a great wonder and mystery to our very existence, you know, that joy of what we do for a living, standing in front of people and communicating through the language of laughter, you know, having a room of disparate people who might not, you know, say day to each other ever in the street, being united in one laugh from the stage just because of the way you tell a story or the way you structure a joke is, is beyond just, um, you know, the, so how do we reconcile the wonder of life with the fact that what you've said is probably most likely true? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You, well, you're but, meant to know. This is the whole point of the podcast. <laughs> Tell me what the meaning of life is. As well. I don't know. I, I honestly, I think, um, you know, we all have to bring something to the table. Like life is a massive dinner party and we're all bringing a plate. And you bring whatever you bring to the table. Like, you know, if if your thing is, you know, like some people bring hugs and feel good. You know what I mean? You know those people that you go, if I need to be nurtured, this is where I'm going to go, to this person. If I need a boot up my ass, this is where I go. You know, you go talk to someone like my brother who goes, what the fuck, you know? And like we all have that one thing that we bring to the table that other people can see. Sometimes it takes us longer to find our thing. Um, but, yeah, so that's it. That And then at the end, then you die and then you sort of – that's why when whenever anyone dies, and I think it's sort of someone massive, like uh, that has played a big role in your life, right, when they die, I feel like there's always another person that comes in, be it a baby or you meet someone that you go – it's almost like they not fill that particular hole, but they need to bring that thing to the table that is now missing at your dinner table, you know. So I honestly, like the year my dad died, my son was born, you know, and I was like, and he's got a very strong personality and he's real, you know, and I feel like he will bring whatever that thing was that my dad would bring to the table minus the giant asshole, you know, like he will bring that thing to the table that keeps you full, you know, keep you in your... I love that. See, that's great. Your meat and three veg. What, do you fear... Di- do you fear death? Mm-mm. Is it is death something that you think about in regard to yourself? I mean, I, I don't fear it at all. I don't... And, and I'm also not one of those people who won't talk about it, you know, like... Um, when we started, I go, oh, we, we should put a will together. And it took my wife about five years to come with me to the lawyer so we can draw up a will because she doesn't even want to think about it, which I think is ridiculous. We're all going to die. Um, I don't fear it. Like I always say, if, if um, you know, and I, I even say, because I travel so much, if I die in a car accident or in a plane crash, know that I 
am, you know, I don't regret a thing and I've lived as full a life as I possibly can. I have moved to places that I wanted to move to. I have, you know, um, like I don't feel like there's anything, you know, maybe if I was still in the closet or if I was, you know, if there's something that's just really pressing on my heart that I wish I had got, I don't have any of that. I flopped it all out. Um, so no, I, I don't fear it at all. I think, you know, if, if you go, it's because you've obviously brought, you know, people have taken everything off your plate that they needed to. And, you know, you've fulfilled your thing. It's like that joy when you go to a dinner party and, you know, it's bring a plate and you put your plate down and poof, immediately it's all gone. People love your shit. It's like, you know, it's amazing. It's like when you go and you go to take your plate and everything is still on there bar one thing. It's like, you know, someone had tried it and told everyone else, fuck, don't try the sausage rolls. It's awful, you know. So you want people to use up your stuff. So once it's gone, it's gone. So then it's, you know, you're good to go. Would, would you like to be remembered? And if so, how would you like to be remembered? Um, Yes, I think everyone wants to be remembered. I, um, and obviously in a positive way, I want people to think of me as someone who's uh, very positive and who have added value, you know. Um, but I also want people to mourn for me. I don't want people to celebrate my life. I want people to be sad because I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> Those people go, I, I want you to be happy. What? Fuck that. You better be sad, bitch. I'm gone. When your friends talk about you behind your back, what do you hope they say? Um, I'm just real positive and nice to be around. What is the aspect of your personality that you think is great but doesn't get commented on? No, I don't. I don't think there is anything because I usually bring it up if they forget. (laughs) 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 I usually tell my friends how blessed they are to have me. Um, has there been a time in your life where you made a mistake so big that you thought you weren't going to be able to recover from it? Um, no, because I'm, I'm willing to carry my shit, you know. I mean, there's been, there have been things in the past that I thought, you know, someone's trying to hang shit on me that I don't deserve, um, you know, and, and that I thought, you know, where's this going? How will I... You know, where you feel like, fuck, there's nothing you can do to fix it. If, if someone's hanging shit on you, like, for instance, I said something on, uh, have been paying attention and I got a lot of shit. Um, like I was trending in Colombia for about two weeks and I got heaps of death threats from it. I got, you know, mm. and it was real full on. I mean, and I'm if like, if you're going to get a death threat from somewhere and it comes from Colombia, you're like, oh, well, at least those guys know how to follow through on this. This is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least, you know, it's not like some guy and stuff by pants in Melbourne. Like I'm getting some real, you know, like I'm not from a guy who has to put down his turmeric latte to have a go, you know, like (laughs) this shit's for real, real, you know. Yeah, but then I was like, this is completely out of my control and, um, you know, like I'm 100% prepared to own my shit unless you're putting shit on me that I know, you know, then I can dig in just as hard where I'm like, I'm not apologising for this shit. Um, so no, I, I've never been in a position where I'm like, this has been massive. Cause if I, you know, it's the same as going for therapy before anything gets too big. If I, if I do something or even if I start, you, cause you know, when you're about to fuck up, you know it. Like, um, so as soon as it starts, I'm like, I oh, know, I better, I, I'm going to be honest here. I'm going to, you know, and I, 
like I just immediately because I think honesty 100% is the best policy like I even like when I just started dating my wife if if you know a girl shows me her tits or like I get the, the you know the, <laughs> the equivalent of dick pics I get a lot of boob pictures and a lot of edge pictures and as soon as I get it I'll go I just got sent this vagina so it's never you know a big surprise or like you know no one can go to my wife and go um She's been getting nudes from me for six months. She goes, yeah, no, we laugh about them at dinner, you know, or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm very, very honest. I'm very, you know. So, no, there's been nothing. I don't think, because I honestly think that's why the suicide rate is so high, because people feel like they're overwhelmed. They feel like there's a point of no return. And I don't think anything gets to a point of no return if you just own your shit and go, yeah. I did it. Like most things will blow over in a couple of days. I, yeah, I, I love that because that's, I think you're absolutely right too. I think that people, when they are in that position where they feel nothing but the, the, what they're feeling is there is there is no way back from where I am right now and we need to let people know that there is a way back. It might not be an easy way back but there's, there's, there is always a way back. There's always a way back. I mean, imagine for a moment you're that person who had the bat soup, right? And you go, all of this is happening because of you. But you know what? If if it, It's the same as with road rage too. If you just own that shit, like if you cut someone off and someone goes absolutely apeshit at you and they pull up next to you, if or even if you're the person getting real angry and you pull up next to that person, if they go, I'm so sorry, immediately you're like, it's okay, bro. It's all right. We all make mistakes. And it's the same as like with this bat soup person. If they go, I didn't know. Like I, so I just didn't know. I wanted to try something new. Just, just like soup. Yeah, you know, like... <laughs> It was a chilly day. I I thought I'd give it a go. My mum's always pro, you know, try something new. I tried it. Uh, Who knew? Who knew? You know, we'd all go, mate, you know. None of us knew. Yeah, no one knew. I've I've put my finger up someone's butt. We all try new stuff, you know. You don't know. You don't know till you try. Now we know. Well, there's got to be that point where, like, we've all done something at some point, like eaten something that – you know, out of the bed or off the floor or off the street out of a cart in New York City or in, you know, Bangladesh or something on holidays and you're just like, yeah, could have been me. There but for I mean, the sake of, could have been I've been me. to Asia, I've had street food, you know, you, you kind of go, fuck it. Like, you know, when people go, you're fine, just don't have street food. I'm like, I'm going to try street food. That's, you know, I want to do it. And if, you know, I've taken some, you know, some shit stoppers, I'm fine. But, you know, sometimes it's more than diarrhea. That's life. (laughs) I don't want to get deep here, Will, but sometimes it's more than diarrhea. Great. I mean, it's so nice that you've even felt empathy for the person who started a global pandemic by eating batsu. You're just like, you know what? It, it could have been any of us. Let's be honest. They're but for the grace you of know God. What? What, go if, what if in six months they go, uh, we made a huge mistake. It's turmeric lattes. Turmeric lattes is what started this whole thing. Everyone in mm. Melbourne's like, oh, fuck, you know, because now we're looking for, was it patient A or, you know, citizen X or whatever. <laughs> now we're looking for the person who had the first turmeric latte and we're like, oh, God, it could have been any one of us. And not me, though, but it could have. Okay, so um, you say, you know, maybe at some stage in your life you might, you yeah. know, become a brain surgeon. Yeah. I like to ask this question. 
ma- I've got a magic wand. So, you know, you don't need to do your 10,000 yeah. hours and learn how to do this, but I can give you any skill in the world. So yeah. it can be any skill, genuinely. Like, you know, cook, cooking, mathematics, sporting achievement, whatever yeah. it is that you define this, but you can have any skill immediately. What would this skill be? Pediatric brain surgeon to cure kids of brain cancer. I mean, it's not funny, but it's a pretty good answer. Thank you. <laughs> Bro, you've got a you've got a magic wand. I'm not going to waste it. On, <laughs> I'm becoming a supermodel at sixty. <laughs> the most desired fat woman. I want to be exactly as I am now, but irresistible to all these guys who hate fat women. I'm like, yeah, how's this hot like that? Okay, so tell me this: if you were, so you still have the life you have, right? All yeah. the skill set you have, but you yeah. also now are the gifted in pediatric pediatric brain surgery to sell, save young children's lives. Do you yeah. go full time as a pediatric brain surgeon, or are you still going to do some gigs? No, I'll still do some gigs, but I'll just be like yeah. Adele. Every five years, have a massive world tour, and all the arenas. <laughs> <laughs> but then in my in my green room I can quickly cure two kids permanently of cancer. Like that's sort of the reach reach for a dream scenario. <laughs> I can do it in my sequence gown. Quickly do the brain surgery, then go do the gig, then come back. But unlike Adele, I never become skinny. Like I still want to be a rep for the fat bitches out there. I still want fat people to go, it's okay. Because all of our heroes are losing weight, you know. It's like every time you get a fatty, you go, she's just fucking like one of us. And then they they go through a thing and then all of a sudden she's a size two and you're like, huh, okay. I mean, she's still good, but now she's just like everyone else, you know. You're like, no, you're no longer doing it for us. Final question. Thank you so much for doing this. Ursula's uh, new special is on uh, Netflix. It's called, what is it called? What's it called? Because it was called Loser when you toured it. But yeah, what's but it now called it's called Overqualified Loser. Because when it went, like, Netflix changed nothing. The only thing they changed to the material was um, they changed cask wine to box wine. That's it. The rest of it, they go, because initially I was like, because um, when I did Comedians of the World, which is also on Netflix, they had quite a lot to say about the material and, you know, I had to subs- send them word for word what I was going to do, blah, blah, blah. Whereas with this one, they came, they saw the show, they go, we want it exactly like that, word for word, what you did tonight in the show, but just my cast wine, box wine. And I was like, that's sweet. But then after we shot it, it was edited, the whole thing. Before they loaded it, they go, just one thing, because they did a test with the American audience and they go, they find loser too negative. We need to change the name. And I go, I'm not changing the name. I talk about loser the whole way through. They go, well, you need to find a way to put a positive spin on it. So I go, okay. Call it overqualified loser, which I just went, yeah, the audience is happy with that. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that was easy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's it. I just, <laughs> they accepted overqualified as positive and now they're all watching it, which is great. But uh, no one can say it right. It's the same as like, have you been paying attention? No one knows the name of the show. They always go, I watch you on that, have Have I been paying attention? Or I watch you on attention was given. I'm like, oh, my God, how do you get it this wrong? <laughs> so they all got underqualified, <laughs> you know, achieving a loser. I'm like, oh, that's not what it is at all. But yeah. I have a time machine. Uh I offer, yeah. <laughs> I offer everybody one round trip on my time machine. 
you can go forward or backward in time. You can go to a point in history and try to change it. You can go to a point in your own life and observe it or try to change it. All I will say is that I'm going to send someone back to kill Hitler. I'm going to send someone back to – I'll send someone more qualified to – Okay, so to, I don't need, don't to, need do to do that. I understand people's impulses to do those sort of things. This okay. is purely for your sake. What would you like to do? Okay. I will go back to my early 20s and just whisper in my ear, put the dick down and just come out. <laughs> Back away from the penis. Back, back away. <laughs> yeah, that thing will spit in your eye, mate. Get away from it. <laughs> that thing is unpredictable. Move away from the dick and just tell your mum. <laughs> just tell your mum. <laughs> Oh, mate, this has been great fun. Thank you so much for doing this. I I genuinely appreciate it and it's always such a delight to get to talk to you. Yeah, man, you too. Hey, thanks for killing some of my Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I I appreciate that we've locked you down so that we can all talk to you. Can I be on it again tomorrow? (laughs) Yeah, this is is a five-part, yeah, every day, (laughs) once once a day. (laughs) No, no, just till Wednesday. I just need you till Wednesday. (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode with Will, he also makes another podcast here at Listener called Toffop, where he teams up with Charlie Clausen to talk all things pop culture, film, sport, and hilarious personal stories. As for me, I'll catch you again with fresh new guests and episodes from February. Don't forget to check out UrshulaCarlson.com for all my upcoming tour dates. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's Enough Already, hosted by me, Ursula Carlson, and produced by Natalie Turner. The supervising producer was Nick McClure, and special thanks to Ella Leaf and Beck Sutherland. Couldn't do it without you, gals. If you like this podcast, remember to subscribe, share it with all of your friends, tell your mum, tell your sister, don't tell that annoying brother of yours, you know, but definitely share it with a friend. 